This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. Last month's episode focused on pro bono lawyers responding to natural disasters. And you heard about how Lone Star Legal Aid was both a provider of help and a victim of the disaster when their offices burned to the ground. So thinking about Lone Star Legal Aid got me thinking about how nonprofits can also need legal help when there's a disaster. And that reminded me of our very first episode about Partners in Health and the pro bono work of Schulte, Roth, and Zabel after the devastating 2010 earthquake in Haiti. This episode feels especially poignant now because Paul Farmer, a visionary activist for health justice and a co-founder of Partners in Health, passed away suddenly earlier this year. So to honor Paul Farmer, we are featuring this encore episode with expanded content about the origins of Partners in Health, in addition to the story of how pro bono lawyers saved the day in a crisis situation back in 2010. Back in 2010, there was this giant earthquake in Haiti. You may have seen something about it in the news. There has been a huge earthquake, magnitude 7.0, just off the coast of Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. Partners in Health needed to get doctors down to Haiti to help people. When the earthquake in 2010 hit in Haiti, Partners in Health had the ability to fly down uh, medical supplies and got a private donor to donate his plane. We had the plane ready to leave. Everyone was on board and we got a call saying that the flight couldn't take off. It was kind of an emergency. They needed to get the place to help people. I mean, there were people who were waiting on the runway to take off. There's a natural disaster. A nonprofit borrows a plane to bring in medical volunteers and supplies from over a thousand miles away. They are ready to go, but the plane can't take off. What's holding them up? And how does a corporate attorney in New York end up solving the problem? Keep listening and you'll find out. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. That 2010 earthquake devastated Haiti, including the major hospital in the capital of Port-au-Prince, and there was an urgent need for outside medical help. Fortunately, Haiti had a medical infrastructure in the countryside, it had been built and was managed by a nonprofit organization, Partners in Health, or PIH. Ophelia Dahl is a co-founder and former executive director of Partners in Health, where she currently serves as chair of the board. I spoke with her to learn more about their work in Haiti and about their response to the earthquake. 
Partners in Health is a medical nonprofit. The biggest piece of what we do is really to help governments in developing countries to build or sometimes rebuild health systems. We work in rural areas chiefly, and that means that we use community health workers and that, that the community health workers or the community needs to plug into a clinic and at the clinic, a basic level of, of care is provided. And then that clinic needs to be also plugged into a, a hospital. What we've tended to do, and it depends on the country, we've tended to go in and provide medical care. So we come in sort of quickly and we train at the same time and we build infrastructure. So those, those three things are often the sort of the nugget of what it is that we do. We build systems, and that, that can take decades. How long has Partners in Health been around? We became a nonprofit officially, meaning contracts were signed in 1987. But we, the founders started working together in about 1984. Paul Farmer is a founder and a physician. Jim Kim is a physician and a founder. Todd McCormack is a founder. He and Paul were roommates in college together, and we've all been close and Tom White, who was a businessman and a, the owner of a construction company in Boston. He has since passed away in 2011. What country did you start in? Haiti, which is where Paul and I met. And then I was volunteering there as an 18-year-old. And Paul was volunteering there as a 23-year-old. And someone introduced us and we, we got on very well, pretty immediately. And it was it was clear. He was, he was on his way to medical school. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And we started talking about what we saw in front of us, which was a pretty, it was a pretty mind-blowing thing for an 18-year-old coming from the English countryside to, to, to take in. And, and it was a sort of, it was a rather fantastic pairing with someone who had a very, had a very clear idea of what it is that we needed to do if we were going to be able to affect some kind of change. And for us, it was to focus in a relatively small way on one specific community. And although I think that Paul was able to see that we should be able to, that, that we could, you know, spread and wouldn't stay in one small community for too long, it was really important at that point to focus on something that you felt like you could get your arms around. I think that the danger sometimes can be you can get very comfortable in one place, doing one thing. And for us, it was, we'd been asked by the community to build a clinic. And it, we were working with an Episcopal priest there in Haiti, an amazing guy. And we built this little clinic, this sort of three-room clinic on church land. So it's pri essentially a private. We didn't charge user fees, but it was, it's, a, it's on private land. And everybody came to this one clinic. And we realized after a, you know, a short while, as the you know people as the, the 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 tap taps and donkeys and taxis were lining up outside and everyone was waiting to be seen that we had to do something about the public sector we had to go and look at what is it what is so bad about the public clinics that people would rather travel feeling very sick they'd rather travel and pay for 8 hours on the road to get to our clinic what what was the difference there and i think that that was an an eye-opener for us. That's really when we decided that although it would be easier in some ways to stay on, you know, church ground and, and be able to do our own thing, that we sort of 
opened up, a, I think, a very good Pandora's box by doing that. Very good, very, very tiring, very complicated. But, you know, we said we can stay here. And that's, you know, and then, and then as you have these kind of small successes, and they really were small, you, you can build on those successes. And then as you start to get a reputation for those successes, you are invited to apply for grants to be able to do more work in a different geography. And these have all been big inflection points for Partners in Health when we decide to do something in a different area. And, you know, the working with the founders all together, I think, you know, having a trusted group of people that can challenge one another to this. I wanted, I wanted us to stay small for a little bit longer. And it was, it was actually Tom White, the, the construction guy and great friend and, 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 and funder of most of this work who said that to stay small would be a kind of sin. It would be easier, but it'd be a kind of sin because what it was we were doing was clearly making a difference. So we spread geographically across about a third of Haiti over... 10 years or so. So it started with the five of you. How big is it now? It's about 17,000 people now with a large majority around the world, 17,000 employees, and a great majority of those people are community health workers. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of a pyramid shape in the sense that the, the work is in the community. A great deal of it is done by people who will have a job and a salary and a training for the first time in their lives. That, by the way, has the added positive effect of, of, of building up a, an economy around there. So if you pay people, they can send their kids to school and do all kinds of other things. And then, so most of the employees are community health workers and working in country. They now work in 10 countries, in places as diverse as Liberia, Russia, Peru, and the Navajo Nation in the U.S. They are the experts when it comes to long-term healthcare solutions, such as building and growing a nation's health services. But unlike Doctors Without Borders or the Red Cross, Partners in Health was not designed to supply physicians and urgent medical aid in a disaster zone. Still, they had to find a way to help in this crisis. A big crisis happened around the earthquake in Haiti. Even though the earthquake itself was only a matter of a couple of minutes, the destruction was so great and mostly focused in and around the capital city. We had a big network of colleagues and trained workers in a supply chain and everything else going on at that time. This was one of those situations where because we had all of those connections and a system in place in Haiti, they, our colleagues could go to work at that time. For example, we had operating rooms that were well-stocked. We had anesthesiologists or, or trained anesthetists there. We had surgeons in place. The scale of that particular tragedy was so vast that we knew that we would need many, many, many more people and many, many more supplies. The airport was closed for a long time. Then you can imagine thousands and thousands and thousands of medical workers volunteering to go and work in Haiti for sometimes a week, sometimes two weeks. 
There's no way to get them down there except through private planes. People are extraordinarily generous. And we, you know, I remember picking up the phone and one would say, would you like to use our plane? And so we had now the, the transportation, because there's zero commercial airlines going to Haiti at this point. We had the private planes. We had the volunteers from a network of hospitals. And you have surgeons working in busy hospitals who offer their time. They've cleared their time. They're ready to go. We'd fill the plane with nurses, operating room nurses, supplies, surgeons, anesthetists, radiologists, all of the stuff. We had the plane ready. So the situation is clear. The earthquake relief efforts require urgent medical help immediately. And Partners in Health pulled together volunteers and supplies and loaded them onto a plane in Boston. Everything was ready to go. Or so they thought. Everyone was on board. And we got a call saying that the flight couldn't take off because, because it was a private plane used for a family, for mostly vacations and that sort of thing, private travel. It couldn't be insured. The plane could not leave packed with people ready to go without insurance. This is not our area of expertise. Held up because of an insurance issue. Partners in Health knows how to set up medical services, not how to coordinate insurance coverage. But remember that New York corporate attorney I mentioned? Partners in Health reached out to his law firm for help. That firm, Schulte, Roth, and Zabel, has 400 lawyers, mostly in New York and Washington, D.C., and they mostly work with private equity and hedge funds. But they also provide pro bono services to Partners in Health. And in this situation, one of the firm's lawyers knew exactly what to do. I'm Rob Kiesel. I'm a partner at Schulte, Roth, and Zabel. I head up our technology practice here. I also do equipment finance-related stuff like airplane finance. Most of my work relates to M&A-related items governing intellectual property, technology, cybersecurity, and I also do equipment finance. You probably don't get that many emergency insurance matters. <laughs> I, don't get, I don't get any emergency insurance matters. Rarely I've had clients whose planes have been dinged up on runways and, and that sort of thing, but never a major crash. Rob's work for his clients includes matters related to private aircraft, and he immediately understood the complications facing partners in health. In order for this plane to be authorized to take off, filled with important supplies and surgeons, it would have to find its own insurance. Couldn't take off without insurance. In order to do that, PIH would have to be able to insure the plane. In order for PIH to insure the plane, we'd have to essentially take the plane over. So you've got a bunch of doctors who, if the plane went down, wouldn't be cheap, flying into Haiti during an earthquake. So insurance is a little, let's say, tricky about the idea that you'd be flying into, onto a runway that may be earthquake damaged. We had to make sure insurance would cover. And I knew that, that, that there had to be a formalized relationship with Partners in Health and this donor in order, in order for the insurance to cover us. Partners in Health had the pilot and it was a bunch of doctors on the plane ready to take off. You know, we need to be covered by insurance. Not only does Partners in Health need to be covered by insurance, but the owner needs to have the insurance coverage cover the airplane and protect them from liability. So he found out how we could, at a moment's notice, lease the plane, literally, lease the plane, the, an aircraft 
leased to Partners in Health, this nonprofit, which then became the operational entity for this aircraft. And then, you know, we could then add our own insurance and secured it. To really appreciate what Rob Kiesel did to solve this problem, it helps to understand something about insurance and airline leases. There's insurance that covers the airplane. That's casualty insurance. So if the plane, we don't use the word crash, but if the plane crashes, the owner gets his money back from the loss of the plane. Then there's liability insurance. Liability insurance is where the owner and anybody using the plane and the pilots and everybody are covered by liability insurance for when they get sued when the plane crashes into a power plant. Liability insurance can be very complicated. For example, Rob Kiesel's solution involved the difference between a wet lease and a dry lease. A wet lease is where the lessor of the plane provides a pilot and crew. Dry lease is when they don't. So if you're an airline, you're leasing a a plane from a bank, which happens all the time, it's a dry lease. Airlines got pilots and crew. That's what they do. If you're a donor with a pilot, donating a plane to somebody for them to use for a short period of time, that's a wet lease. Okay, so I did a short wet lease. Then we called the insurance company. They checked the airport in Haiti, found that it was okay, and, and gave us coverage. Partners in Health didn't need casualty loss insurance because we didn't own the plane, but we needed liability insurance to cover the people in the plane and the people on the ground that might be hit by the plane and the people in the neighborhood where the plane crashed if it crashed into a nuclear plant, for example. But I I, I don't think it took more than two, two or three hours. Really? Yeah. This would have taken me six months. Yeah, right, because that's that's why it's important to not have me representing a battered spouse, but it's equally important for a litigator not to be trying to do an airplane lease. To have a wet lease on your computer, you have to have expertise in that area. Exactly. I don't have one on my computer. Yeah, exactly. I do. So there you go. Specialization helps, you know, at least cut down the amount of time spent on something. Specialization certainly does help. Because he was using his specialty, Rob Kiesel was able to help quickly, making a huge difference for disaster victims 1,500 miles away. For Partners in Health, Rob was the right lawyer at the right time. For Rob, this was the right pro bono opportunity. It was the perfect match of skills to a very particular set of needs. But how did PIH and Rob ever get together? And how did they get together so quickly? To understand how it worked and what made this all possible, let's back up and consider the bigger picture. Nonprofit organizations often face legal problems. And in a crisis, they normally can't get a lawyer to help them quickly. They usually don't even know whom to call for the right kind of help. Sure, they could cold call a lawyer from a website, but the firm they are calling doesn't know them. Then it takes time to check potential conflicts and establish a relationship. And it's especially hard to make a cold call when you're asking for pro bono services. They might call a lawyer from their board, but who knows if that is the right lawyer to handle that problem. Most nonprofits just skip getting timely legal help, or they pay money they don't really have in order to get the help. But Partners in Health was different. They knew exactly whom to ask, 
and they knew they could ask for free legal help. When PIH reached out, the people at Schulte, Roth, and Zabel knew Ophelia Dahl. They were familiar with PIH's operations, and they were committed to helping. This was because they had an established relationship. Schulte, Roth, and Zabel was already their pro bono corporate counsel. How did they come to have this kind of relationship? That was the brainchild of a lawyer and longtime leader in legal services, and his name is Danny Greenberg. My name is Danny Greenberg. I am now the special counsel for pro bono initiatives at the law firm of Schulte, Roth, and Zabel in New York City. My background is in public interest. I, out of law school, was a legal services lawyer on New York's Lower East Side for 17 years. I then went to Harvard Law School where I ran its clinical programs. I came back to New York City to head the Legal Aid Society, which is the largest really not-for-profit law firm in the world. A thousand lawyers doing criminal and civil and juvenile work. And then out of that experience really created this concept for my job here at Schulte Roth, which is to coordinate the pro bono program but to do it in a way that's proactive, that doesn't wait simply for an organization or an individual to say, will you come to housing court and help us with this matter? But it tries to deliver services to organizations in a holistic way, much like the rest of the law firm functions. So what are the things that you've done proactively to design your, the pro bono work? Well, I think it would be helpful to give you a little background as to how it evolved. When I ran Legal Aid, I was the head of a very large organization. I was chosen largely because of my own background in poverty law. But I realized relatively quickly that although I thought I would be spending 80% of my time on mission-driven work, in fact, in addition to becoming the executive director of an NGO, I'd really become the CEO of a business. It wasn't something I wanted to spend time doing, and yet suddenly I found myself dealing with all of these problems. From his own experience, Danny knew that executive directors were struggling to run the business part of the nonprofit, that they needed something akin to corporate counsel, and that they weren't really getting it in an efficient, organized manner. At the same time, Danny also saw a problem with the way that pro bono opportunities were being packaged for corporate lawyers. The law firms, on the other hand, because they were only asked to do litigation, 80% of the partners and associates there really weren't doing any kind of pro bono in their own area. Now, they might if they were a hedge fund lawyer volunteer to go to housing court. But as I found out in my experience, lots of them are doing that work because they don't want to go to housing court. They don't feel capable of doing it, but they're simply not interested in doing it. On the other hand, all of the business that my organization at Legal Aid had, that's exactly what a great law firm does. And so my, my, my thought was, why not marry these two together? Why not instead of asking an employment lawyer to go into family court, why couldn't I ask that employment lawyer to do employment law? And with that insight, Danny conceived of his proactive model of offering pro bono corporate counsel services to nonprofits. Schulte Rothenzabel is pro bono corporate counsel to more than 50 nonprofit organizations. They choose carefully with whom they want to work. They build long-term relationships. And with each organization, they develop a clear system for communicating about needs and capacity. 
it's a relatively easy process that the firm has bought into. If somebody has an issue, they send me an email. They describe it in such detail that I could hit the forward button because I'll know to whom it should go and I'll know if we have the capacity. I have no hesitation in saying to my clients, I don't have the capacity right now to do this. Can it wait? Almost all the time it can. And if it can't, maybe we can fit it in. But the notion is, I'm going to try to do this for you. On the majority of things we do, I play the facilitator role. I'll get the issue. I'll hand it off to people who know about it. We make sure that there is a partner on every single case, just as there would be in a billable matter. And I'll do some checking in on it. It's worked extraordinarily well because as the model was conceived, now lawyers are doing things in their own areas. It's interesting because I was at Legal Aid and I was the director of pro bono, among other things, for a little while. And we spent a lot of energy trying to train firm lawyers how to do poverty law cases, whether it was training them how to make sense of food stamp regulations or training them how to handle an eviction case. What you're talking about is saying, we're going to ask you to do what you know how to do. And it's not only the energy it takes to train a lawyer to do it who doesn't know it. It's also that they don't know the player. It's not an accident that one of the words for attorneys is that we're counselors. We're not just litigators, we're counselors, and we give advice, and we keep people out of trouble before they get into trouble. There's many things that a law firm can do to help the work of Partners in Health go much more smoothly and allow you to be able to do more work unhindered. I think that they've done more than 6,600 hours of work for us. I don't think we had any idea about the scope that they would help us with. 6,000 pro bono hours might worry some firms. A common fear is that the nonprofit will ask for too much help and the law firm will end up far more involved than they planned. To make this work, you need to establish a relationship, manage expectations, and decide what your firm can and should handle for the nonprofit, and then teach their leaders to make good judgment calls about when to contact your firm. At Schulte, Roth & Zabel, Danny Greenberg is the first contact for nonprofit clients. There has to be some kind of way to triage this work. And I think that Danny really, it feels to us as though he kind of in, invented that. He obviously didn't invent triage, but he, it really felt as though he, he instilled this, this notion in us. You have to make sure that you have somebody that is tasked with sorting this through and filtering it at an organization. We can do that medically with our eyes closed to Partners in Health, but as an organization to triage legal issues is an altogether different specialty. And Danny really did that. This is an example of the importance of having the infrastructure of an attorney-client relationship, a pre-existing relationship with a nonprofit organization. It should be a model and an inspiration to other firms to go out and develop those relationships in advance so that they are prepared to respond to nonprofits when a need arises. For a relationship to take place where someone like Danny can put out an APB to be able to say that, there has to be built into that firm that is clearly, first and foremost, a for-profit company. There has to be an ethos of it's okay to step up and stop what you're doing 
to be able to truly assist and put all of your time on this and stretch your contacts, put yourself on the line, you know, do all kinds of things. That, that comes also from the top of a big law firm to be able to say, we want to do this. All law firms do pro bono as a way of giving back to the profession. And of course, that's the right thing to do. But a model like this has ancillary benefits, has extraordinary training benefits. You're asking people to do things in their own areas. They're supervised by partners just as they would be on a billable case, but they have much more autonomy to take charge of the issue and do it themselves. Danny Greenberg is extraordinary. But what happens if you don't have your own Danny Greenberg? What happens if you don't have a pro bono counsel in your firm? What if your firm is just you? How do you get involved in doing pro bono work for nonprofits and doing the kind of work that you are good at? There are several ways that you can get more involved. First, there are organizations devoted to connecting nonprofits to pro bono lawyers who can meet the nonprofit's specific needs. There is a brief list of some of those organizations on PLI's Pursuing Justice website. You can also look in your own community. Is there an organization that you already donate to? Maybe you have even thought about joining their board. Could you reach out to them and offer your legal services? Tell them about your skills. Describe the kind of work you're prepared to contribute. If they can use your help, you can enter into a pro bono attorney-client relationship. Do this in advance so that when an issue comes up, they know that they can call you and you can respond quickly. So there's extraordinary value to a law firm that adopts this kind of a model for what it does internally as well as what it does in the external world. Our clients love it. Our billable clients love it. There's instrumental value in going out and recruiting, saying to people, come here, because not only will you do what you're doing, but in your own area, you're going to get training to do. You have to find what will fulfill you in your pro bono work. And you have to find who you want to do it for and the ways in which you want to do it. And I think Partners in Health really appreciates what we do. You can't imagine how much people here appreciate doing it for Partners in Health. In law... We mostly measure our work by how much time it takes. We count hours. But maybe we should measure this case by its impact, by the number of lives that Rob Kiesel helped because those volunteers were able to get where they were needed quickly. Sometimes we do pro bono because we're the ones who know how to make it easy. It might be easy for us, but it's hard for everyone else. For Rob, this was routine work but it allowed other people to save lives. His hours didn't add up to much, but that's not the right way to measure this work. It was in, my, in the area of, the, of what I do. I was glad these partners and health people got to go to where they were going. The point is whether we get applauded for it or not, this is something that we should do as human beings. We focus on the organizations that have the expertise to directly help thousands, millions of people. And the fact that we're not doing that individual case in no way takes away from the fact that our vision and our eyes are always on the clients those organizations serve. 
it's hard to put a value on that. It really is. It, it, you know, to think about what that team was able to do with all of those supplies once they got to Haiti. Those are nail-biting times, and there is absolutely no way that plane would have been able to take off without that intervention at that time, without specific area of expertise, and, and the will to do it. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono.